Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11, we come to it. In Genesis, it was chapter 22. In Exodus, it's chapter 12. The, the consummate passage or chapter of the entire Shemot, the book of names, this is the one. And uh, we're gonna just walk through it. Try and do it without pomp or circumstance. Just take the word at face value. Jesus is all over the page here tonight. Some of which I will point out, some that you're gonna see just on your own. Some that maybe I'll miss and you'll miss, but then tomorrow it'll hit us. But he is everywhere and I want you to be alert to that. I encourage you to pay attention to the divine intentions of God in what we're about to study. Beginning in verse one of Exodus chapter 11, now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. Boy, that'd be cool if God did that today. Verse three, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight, I am going out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones. All the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt such as, has, as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord, how Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me saying, go out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Four distinctions will set apart the 10th and final plague from all of the previous plagues. We already talked about how the previous nine plagues come in sets of three that are unique in each set. We talked about why, but now we come to the 10th plague and it is truly unique. It is simply different than any that we've seen so far. I wanna give you four reasons why, and if you wanna jot these down, if you're a note taker, catch this quickly. We're jumping right into point number one, no more probation. No more probation. The first nine plagues were probationary warnings. That is, the plague came and there was opportunity to repent. So another plague came and there was opportunity to repent. 
Each plague allowed Pharaoh and indeed Egypt to repent and release the sons of Israel from their bondage. Nine times, plague, opportunity, plague, opportunity, but with the 10th time, the probation is over. There is no opportunity to repent. The die is cast. There will be no more warnings. Take heed because we're coming to that point. In the span of history, we are coming to the point where there will be no more warnings. God is patient. God, as we prayed earlier, is long-suffering. He waits for us to wait upon him. He longs for us to simply trust in him. And so in that goodness and patience, he has waited and waited and waited. But the time of probation and the church age, the age of grace is fast coming to a close. The day will fall upon this earth where there is no more probation. Oh, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Second Peter chapter three, verses nine and 10. Oh no, God is not lazy. He is not lethargic. He is not slow, but he's patient. And as with Egypt, we don't even know the exact time span, but it is probably several months, if not a year plus, from the first plague now till we get to the point of the final plague. And God patiently brings a plague and then steps back to see what are the people gonna do. And then another plague, but probation has been the rule all the way through, opportunity after opportunity to repent of their sins, to repent of their rebellion, and to repent of the bondage that they're causing for Israel. Probation is over. That's the first thing to note about the 10th plague. Secondly, there's no more mediation. The 10th plague is unique in this. Every other plague involved action on the part of Aaron or Moses, holding up the staff, striking the water with the staff, scooping up ash and throwing it into the sky, lifting up hands toward the heavens. Every plague had something that either Aaron early on and later on Moses had to do as a mediator between God and man, standing in the gap, if you will, but the 10th plague is 100% solely the work of Yahweh. What grace. This would not be on Moses' head. Moses would not have to carry with him the rest of his life the death of the firstborn of Egypt. God's not gonna do that to Moses. He's not even gonna give him a hand in it a staff to raise, an opportunity to stand in between. He will be stepping back, celebrating the Feast of Passover, as we'll talk about in a moment, and God brings the 10th plague with no human mediation. Look at verse four of chapter 11, where Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight, I am going out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. I will do this. Wait, wait, why the cows? What'd they do to anybody? Cows were sacred in Egypt. Again, reference the golden calf in a story to come. 
Cows were a, a sacred animal to the Egyptians, and if the cows were living after all this happened, it's entirely likely that with all of their religiosity and their idolatry, they could have said it was on account of the cows. They brought this curse among us. And so God, in taking out not only the firstborn, but the cattle as well, made it clear they had nothing to do with this. They're taken out as well. You know, it's funny because the unbeliever is always looking someone, for someone to credit other than God. Even someone to blame, so long as we don't have to give credit to Almighty God. But God removes that option so that it is absolutely crystal clear it's not Moses, it's not Aaron, and it's not even a cow who has anything to do with the death of the firstborn. This comes by the hand of Almighty God, by the hand of Yahweh himself. By the way, there was no death angel, you know, no dark-hooded, sickle-wielding harbinger of destruction that God sent in his place, someone else to do his bidding in this. No, this was the hand of the Lord. By the way, if you saw the Charlton Heston movie, there was no green gas either. <laughs> you know, it came down out of the sky and then spread through the streets. I mean, that was a cool Hollywood effect. That's not what happened. God came down and struck the firstborn throughout all of Egypt. Psalm 78, and this is where some may have gotten the idea of this death angel, says, Psalm 78, verse 49, he sent upon them his burning anger, fury, and indignation, and trouble, a band of destroying angels. And someone might say, aha, so there were destroying angels. Yes, in the first nine plagues. Apparently, God had angels behind the scenes working for the first nine plagues, but then Psalm 78, verse 50 says, he leveled a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave over their life to the plague and smote all the firstborn in Egypt. He did that. God did that. And so with the 10th plague, we understand no more probation, no more mediation. This is a direct act of God, not through any mediator or intercessor. It's God alone. Number three, number three, we have the cooperation. This is the first time we see this with any of the plagues that there is now a cooperation. That is the Israelites are called upon to do something. Not to cause the plague to happen, but as the plague would take place, the Israelites have their part. They have something that they are called upon to obey as Moses was instructed back in verse two to speak to the Israelites. He, it, God said, speak now in the hearing of the people. So understand that the speaking of Moses there from uh, all the way down, and I guess it'd be verse four, down through verse seven, Moses is talking to Israel. He's talking to the people. He's not talking to Pharaoh at that point. He's talking to the people and calling upon their hearing because this wonder, this singular final plague, this wonder of God will call on the people to offer sacrifice and to outwardly display their allegiance to God on the very doorposts of their homes. No other plague required anything of Israel. This one calls on them to set themselves apart and to make a public distinction on their very front doors that they are with the Lord. To smear blood, the blood of a lamb on the doorpost and the lintel. They're called upon to do this as this 10th plague comes down. So it involves the children of Israel's cooperation. And then number four, this plague is unique in that it has an extensive introduction. 
an extensive introduction. We've seen this with other plagues where there's a long introduction to the plague, as with the plague of, of the hailstones. But with this one, this is the longest by far. And, and much of chapter 11 and 12 is introducing and explaining and talking behind the scenes about what's going on before this plague actually comes down. The plague doesn't even happen until verse 29 of chapter 12. And that's showing us this long introduction because, listen, because this moment was to be cemented in Israel's heart and in their history for the entire duration of their existence to this very day. And of course, I'm talking about Passover. What are Israel's two most enduring holy observances? Shabbat and Passover. The two observances above all others that the Jewish people have kept through their entire history of 3,500 plus years. Shabbat. It's said that the Jews don't keep Sabbath. Sabbath keeps the Jews. You can say the same thing about Passover because it was said over and over as the Jews were in the diaspora dispersed throughout all the world, they would say on Passover every year, next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem looking forward to that day when they would have Passover back in the land. So Shabbat and Pesach is the word. Passover are the two key remembrances above all the others of Israel. The Lord's work with Israel reveals something to us to note here in this long introduction and the time he takes to explain this and bring it about. God cultivates remembrance in and among this people through the feasts, through the sacrifices, through Torah law. And as we go through Torah itself, the first five books, understand God weaves his word and his works into the very fabric of their life experience. That's how he does it. That's how faith works. That's how faith is nurtured and grows when we allow the Lord to weave his word and his works into the fabric of our lives. You will not grow faith showing up on a Sunday morning to church. It'll help, but it is not the key. You will not grow faith showing up on a Wednesday night, signing up for a worship team, being part of this ministry or that ministry. Those things can help. But faith is grown as you allow, as I allow the Lord to weave his word and his works into my everyday life. To where it impacts every decision. At work, at home, at play, wherever I am. That God's word is what I seek for wisdom and counsel. That God's works are what I am looking to, to follow and understand. God himself is the one I cry out to in any situation where I don't have the answer. And I can tell you, over the last four months, I have had very few answers until I go to the Lord. I have been confused like anybody else. I've been frustrated at times. I've been angry at times. I've been overwhelmed at times. And yet, when I cry to the Lord, when we cry to the Lord, the answers come along with peace because God weaves his word into our lives. Listen to this. You may be familiar with it. James chapter one, verse 21, the book of Yaakov. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word 
implanted, which is able to save your souls. Humility is required because if I think I got it together, if I think I can handle it, I'm not gonna look to his word and I'm certainly not gonna pay attention when his word is spoken. With humility, I open my heart to receive the word implanted. And then Yaakov says, but prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now, now how does that work? I come with humility, and now I'm seeking clarity from the, word, from the Lord, but how does it work that I become a doer of the word? What does that mean? Yaakov goes on. Verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Now, sometimes that's good. <laughs> when I look in the mirror, and I'm not sure I like what I see looking back, it's good to forget. But spiritually speaking, the Lord is saying, it's like someone who just forgets themselves. We come to the Lord in humility. We're seeking clarity, and we discover that if we examine his word carefully, we get identity. If we're just looking at ourselves as in a mirror, we're gonna forget. If we're looking for information or understanding somewhere else, we're just gonna forget that as well. We come to the Lord, and our identity is what he's working on, not just answering our prayers, but answering our hearts. God always gives us more than we ask for. And then James continues, Yaakov, but one who looks intently or who examines carefully at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And so now we move from identity to liberty because we are acting on the word that has been implanted in us. We're not forgetting it, we're thinking it, we're processing it. It's woven into our lives. That's what God did with Torah. And that's what the Pharisees completely missed on down the line. They were trying to keep the nuances of the law rather than recognizing God just wanted to be a part of everyday life. He wanted to be there when they rose. He wanted to sup with them at noontime. He wanted to be there at the dinner table. He wanted to be there as their heads hit the pillow at night. And every moment in between, you got a tough decision at work? Hey, talk to me about it. I'd love to be a part of that, the Lord would say. Got a relationship struggle issue? Bring me into it. I'd love to bring redemption and healing there. God wants to be a part of everything. And so with Israel, the beauty of Torah is that God was weaving daily life in and throughout and around his own person so that the feasts were about God and the festivals were about God and the holidays, they were about God and the word was about God and the Sabbath once a week was about God, the sacrifices about God, it's all him. The key to knowing the word of God, and I'm asked this question a lot, how can I, I wanna get into the word, I really want to know the word. You know, sometimes people will say, Rick, I wanna know the word like you know the word. Hey, you don't wanna know the word like I know the word because it would mess you up. No, I'm kidding. I, knowing the word, it, it's easy for me to sit here with notes and, and Bible open and, and preach to you. You know what the challenge is in my life? Going home and living this, carrying it on. Knowing the word isn't being able to quote passages or, or, or recall scriptures. Knowing the word 
Gang, listen, the key is living the word. You wanna know the word of God? You gotta live the word of God. It's gotta be part and parcel of your daily existence. And so the people now are being pulled into this process. God is about to introduce something in in Exodus chapter 12 that will impact and change the very landscape of their lives. It's gonna be an annual observance, but it's gonna mean much more than that. Along with all that is coming down the pike here in terms of Torah law and the sacrifices, and it's marvelous because God wants to be a part of every day. Now, I want you to notice something here in this extensive introduction. We kind of backtrack a bit. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27 says, by faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. So we know he left out of Egypt with no concern for seeing Pharaoh anymore because he saw the Lord. And you may even recall back at the end of chapter 10 that Moses made that comment, you're right, Pharaoh, I shall never see your face again. It's kind of a closing of the chapter of Moses' dealings with Pharaoh. However, we come to verse eight of chapter 11, and you might be a little confused. Note this. All these servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, go out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So who's he talking to there? See, verses four through seven, he's talking to the people of Israel. Suddenly in verses eight, or or verse eight, he's talking to Pharaoh again, and then God repeats something he'd said before, that Pharaoh's not gonna listen to you, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. That applies to all the previous plagues. What's happening here is verses eight, nine, and 10 are a postscript to chapter 10, not chapter 11. Now, they're put here, I don't think they're misplaced, but in good Hebrew literature, Moses is now, he's gone ahead to talk a bit in chapter 11 about what's coming. There's a final plague coming, but then he goes back to the final conversation with Pharaoh and repeats it and shows us what was taking place there when he said, I shall never see your face again. This refers to that. How do you know? Because at the end of verse eight, again, he says, he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So put it together. I'll never see your face again. And in a huff, Moses stomps out of there. So it's a a recap now of what had just happened before the introduction in chapter 11 of the 10th plague. Moses departed Pharaoh in hot anger. The word hot anger, hurry up. In Hebrew, I just like saying the Hebrew because it's so expressive. Hurry up! I mean, I'm I'm gonna use that next time I am flaming mad. Hurry up means flaming rage. Moses was in a rage when he said, you'll never see my face again. He's angry. He is hot under the collar. He comes steaming and storming out of there. Why? Why? I submit to you that it's not just anger at rebellion, It is an anger of an ardent compassion over the outcome of rebellion. That Moses is angry because he knows 
what the coming judgment is. Even before we're told in chapter 11, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Even before that, Moses knew what the plague was. Moses had foreknowledge by God. The Lord had told him what was coming. You know that Moses has known this the entire time. Note that chapter 11 Begins in verse one, it says, now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh in Egypt. Guess what? That phrase, the Lord said, is the imperfect verb tense, said is the Lord had said. So he had already said this. What we're hearing in the first seven verses of chapter 11 is a recapitulation, or at least the first three verses where the Lord says this to Moses and tells him to go tell the Israelites. He's told Moses this already. Moses has known this, has been aware of this. He went out from Pharaoh in hot anger because he knew what was coming. He knew what was about to fall on Pharaoh, who we have to assume he had some relationship with from the first 40 years of his life in Egypt. We don't know what it was. We don't know how close they were or how they knew each other, but it's really unlikely Moses didn't know Pharaoh across 40 years in the palace. But here and now, the Lord had said, Moses was aware of all this. How do we know? Go back to Exodus chapter four and note that in Exodus chapter four, picking up in verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, this is all pre-plague, when you go back to Egypt. So at this point, Moses is in Midian. He hasn't even gone back to Egypt yet. When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And we've just seen that through nine plagues. But then the Lord said, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And Moses first heard it in Midian. Think about what weight Moses had to bear all this time, knowing with every rejection, Pharaoh is getting one step closer to his firstborn son dying. With every rebellion to God, plague after plague, the people of Egypt were getting one step closer to the most horrifying night of their life when a cry would come up from Egypt such as had never been heard nor ever would again. Moses knew this. Did you ever get angry at rebellion? You ever get hot under the collar at those who are just refusing to listen to the Lord? Hey, I'm not talking about getting angry at the rebellion we see on the news. I'm not talking about getting angry because we're being told this, that, or the other about how we're supposed to handle this crisis of disease. Do you ever get angry, specifically knowing that blind, hard-hearted action is bringing its own calamity on that person? See, that's a righteous anger when you have a brother or a mom or a sister or a dear friend 
who is in rebellion to the Lord, if you have a loved one and they argue and they fight and they don't wanna hear about Jesus and they're always bringing up secular stuff and throwing it in your face, you ever find yourself getting angry, not at them, not frustrated because they won't listen, but angry because you know where they're headed without Jesus. You know the end. You know what's gonna befall this world. It is a right action, a right reaction to the sin of rebellion to be angry at what it does, at where it goes, at who and how it impacts. I hate sin. I hate sin in my life. Hate what it's done to me. I hate sin, especially in the life of the non-believer, because I know what that means. I know where it ends. You gotta let it make you angry sometimes, but, but listen, the Bible says, Ephesians 4, 26, be angry and yet do not sin. Be angry. Okay, in this context, I can, I'm angry at sin and rebellion. How do I not sin or how do I sin? Well, Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Don't let Satan twist your frustration, your anger at sin in the world into judgment. You see, all judgment, stay with me, all judgment has been given to the Son, not to you and not to me. Now, that doesn't mean we don't discern or judge rightly. It doesn't mean that we don't hold and uphold the standards of biblical morality that we have gone through over the years here. The truths and righteousness as defined by God himself. We must stand on those things, but that's a different thing than being judgmental of someone else's sin. See, the sun will judge the sin, but not letting the sun go down on our anger, the S-U-N, sun go down on our anger, and not giving the devil an opportunity, it allows, we're talking about allowing the spirit of God. When I am angry at what I see sin doing, to a loved one, it's allowing the Spirit of God to mold that anger into compassion so that I see them apart from the sin that is destroying them. And I love them because it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It is not the judgment. We've seen nine plagues and the plagues have not worked. And so, not that they were supposed to, God knew they wouldn't. The plagues were for other purposes than trying to work or affect a final outcome. God knew exactly what he was doing. But Ephesians chapter four, verse 31, just down from Paul saying, be angry and do not sin. He said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. If you are feeling any of those things as I myself have recently, put it away. Not for my sake not for yours, put it away for the sake of Christ. Let it all be put away. And then, listen, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. How did God in Christ forgive me? Oh yeah, Calvary. That's the standard. That's what we're called to emulate in our lives. Be angry at sin, and yet do not sin. Give judgment to God, and you respond with compassion. 
I believe that's what's going on with Moses. I think there is a fire of compassion in him as he storms out. This is ridiculous. He doesn't know what's coming, but Moses knew what was coming. Chapter 12, verse one. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Wait a minute, I thought Rosh Hashanah came in the fall. And this is springtime now. In fact, this is what would later be called after the Babylonian captivity when they came back and the Jewish calendar was established such as it is today, it would be the month of Nisan. It's called Abib right now at this point in, in history, but it would become the month of Nisan. We know when Nisan is, that's in the springtime. That's when Passover happens. That's right around the time that Christians celebrate Resurrection Day, Easter. It's all in the springtime. The Jewish New Year, according to this, is not Rosh Hashanah, which means head of the year. That's the civic calendar for Israel. So civically, Israel celebrates their New Year's celebration in the fall. But by God's calendar and God's standard, the true new year, the first month of the months of the year, came in the spring when God makes new anyway. He set the new year for when the, the year actually is new. The coldness and the darkness and the, and the despair and the ice and snow of winter is over. Death in the created world is done and life begins anew. And so that's when God said, this is going to be the first month. This is when it starts. God said in Ephesians 43, verse 19, behold, I'm doing a new thing. And we have seen over and over that the Lord loves to do new things in our lives. We're in a new season right now. This old dying ugly pandemic season, this is gonna go. God's about to do a new thing. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it's gonna look. But he says, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. And that's an indication of the coming kingdom. He's about to do a new thing. You ever think about that, that when the kingdom falls on this planet, it's gonna be something no one's ever seen before. It's gonna be brand new. The planet reformed, beautiful, paradise, under the authority of Jesus worldwide, globally, this, this, we have no idea what's coming. It's gonna be brand new. Jeremiah 31, 22, God promised a new thing. How long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter? He says to Israel, for the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. What was that? Listen, a woman will encompass a man. It's one of the early prophecies of the birth of Christ. That was a new thing. Brand, God had never before put on human flesh. Never before had there been a man walking on the planet who was God. Both man and God, a new thing, Jesus. And of course, Revelation 21 verse five says, he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right for these words are faithful and true. And that goes beyond the kingdom, which is gonna be new. That's looking ahead to the new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth. God's not done doing new things. As old as this planet may be feeling and as old as you may feel or I may feel, God's about to do something new. 
And in Jesus, you're part of that. If you long for a new life, you want a fresh start, a clean slate, you want to start over? I mean, truly, begin again? You want lasting purity? Man, come to Jesus and be born again. That's the only way to be new. And those who are born again are gonna experience the newness of God in a way that we can't, even us, we can't fathom. Be born anew and you will find what is new and what is true. Galatians chapter six, verse 14, Paul said, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, that is religion or lack thereof, but a new creation. That's what God's about making all things new in you and in me. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And with the deliverance of Israel, Passover, which is about to be introduced here in the new month, the new head of the year, the, the first month of the year, the new beginning, Passover signifies God is now doing a new Verse three, speak to all the congregation of Israel saying on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Oh, that's cute. Get a little lamb, you know. My daughter wants a pot-bellied pig. I don't get it. No, no, not pot-bellied. What's the little one? A teacup pig. She wants a teacup pig. I don't want a teacup pig, but, but she does. Yeva wants one. But get a little lamb for yourself, for your household, a little cute little pet lamb. That's, by the way, the indication of the word here. It's saya or say for lamb. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the numbers, number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Okay, now it's getting serious. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old or a yearling, that, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And so that word for lamb is say. It means a yearling kid. It can be a goat. It can be a lamb, either one. And if one household was too small to have a whole lamb just for itself, they would end up sharing the lamb between households. So now the lamb that was a cute little pet has become a meal. So this is a little weird. Josephus said that they came to the point where it had to be a quorum of 10 people. So if you had less than 10 in your household, you had to couple with a neighbor's house and together you could get one lamb between you. Why? Because Passover, as we'll see, was not just an individual affair, wasn't just a family affair, it was a neighborly affair. It was a, a, communication, a communion or a congregational affair, a community affair, bringing people together that's what redemption does. Brings people together. It's what restoration does. It brings people together. It does not drive them apart. Brothers and sisters, if there's anything in our lives as a church community that is driving us apart, it is not of the Lord. He brings together. He, he wants us in togetherness. 
Now, one of the strangest and most beautiful things I've noticed in the church throughout my life is the way Jesus brings people together who would otherwise never get together. Their lives too different. Their occupations too different than each other. Their interests and and our affinities would keep us. I, I just think about the Bridge Fellowship. What a, a, a ragtag group. I mean, no offense, but what, how did we end up in the same room together? It's Jesus. And, and haven't you experienced that? You're out traveling somewhere, you get on an airplane, you sit down, you find out the person in your row also loves Jesus, and now you got a friend. Jesus brings people together. It's people who divide. Jesus brings together. And Paul said, Ephesians 4, verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with, with, with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, indicating, by the way, if I have to show tolerance in love, that I'm not always going to agree with my brothers and sisters. But I'm called to show tolerance in love anyway, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's, part, that's a, a subtext, if you will, a serendipity of Passover. Passover has huge spiritual significance, but don't miss in it that it's a community event, that it brought neighbors together, families together, the Jewish people together as a people. It was distinct for them. And it was about relationship and community. Well, that's no surprise. God is about relationship and community. Verse six says, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. And there it is. So much for the cute pet. Naomi, if we get a teacup pig, just know we can have one for four days and then we're gonna cut it up and have bacon. And I know you love bacon. (laughs) What a horrible thought. It's intense. But note this, it's intentional. Because back in verse three, he says, a lamb for each household. And then in verse four, if the household's too small for a lamb, then you're to get together with your neighbor. And then you're to divide what was a lamb, you're to divide the lamb And then finally in verse five, your lamb shall be an unblemished yearling. Get that? First, it's just a lamb you pick out of the flock. And then it's the lamb that's now in the household with you. And they would bring it right into the household as a pet, caring for it, looking after it, protecting it, inspecting it. And then a lamb, which became the lamb, is finally your lamb just in time to offer it up as sacrifice. It's not cruelty on the part of God. It's intentionality. You are to feel this. You are to be relationally connected to it. You should have some emotional reaction to the slaughtering of Passover. You should feel it. So the lamb was inspected and selected and cared for by the, by the family until the proper time. Until the proper time. Pick them up on the 10th of Nisan. Again, it will be Nisan, it's not yet, but on the 10th of this first month, get the lamb and you're to take care of it. And then on the 14th, that's when you kill it at twilight. Why? When Adam and Eve sinned, go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter three, Eve sinned, 
She was deceived. Adam comes along, just blatantly sins, knowing exactly what he's doing. I know that that's my interpretation, but you can read, it's pretty clear. Eve gets tricked. Adam just jumps right in. When that happened, brothers and sisters, God was not caught off guard. It wasn't like, oh no, stop him. Oh, I want to look the other way and the serpent got, oh no, now we got to go to plan B. Uh-uh. Peter, on Pentecost, was preaching to the Jewish people, gathered there in Jerusalem. Acts chapter two, verse 22, he said, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God let me be more clear, kept a lamb, as it were, for the proper time. God always knew, God has always had a plan of deliverance, not only for his people, but for all people. Revelation 13, 8 tells us that Jesus calls Jesus the little lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That is a mind-boggling statement. Slain from the foundation of the world doesn't mean he was crucified before the world was formed. It means that that was the intention. That was the plan. Before mankind even could sin, God had the plan knowing what we were gonna do. Ready to step in with the necessary sacrifice. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. A little lamb slain predetermined by the foreknowledge of God. In the same way, select the Passover lamb on the 10th and on the 14th, you're gonna slaughter it. With foreknowledge, with predetermination, this is the plan. This is, the lamb is chosen first, selected, inspected, and then slaughtered. Long before Passover came into play, Yeshua Yeshua would be the one who portrayed it before Passover. And of course, after he actually did. But prior to, he was the little lamb who would be slain. God, Yahweh, had resolved to shed the little lamb's precious blood. Note that it's to happen at twilight. At twilight, bayin ha arbarim, or arbayim, which means between the two settings or between the settings. God set this up beautifully. Between the settings of the sun, so between the late afternoon, if you will, of the one day on into the next, between the twilights, that's, that's when, between the settings, this was supposed to take place. It's perfect because it allows Jesus to be at the Passover meal in the evening and also become the Passover himself by morning because it's between the two settings. It's perfect, it's right on time. He shares the last Passover and then he becomes the Passover in that same period. But wait, how, how long again? How long is the lamb kept before it's slaughtered? It's the 10th, you get them, and then you slaughter them on the 14th, so it's four days. You have the lamb for four calendar days. Just listen to this, I find it interesting. 
Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse eight, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. And we've made the application before that the seven days of creation are an apparent pattern for many things. The seven days of creation, a pattern for weeks, a pattern for Sabbath years, a pattern for when the Jubilee would happen every 49 years. And I believe personally, and we'll see this, whether this is true or not, I'm not gonna say this is absolute truth, but I believe that the seven days of creation are the pattern of the thousands of years of history, that is 7,000 years total that right now we're at the end of 6,000 years. Well, what about the billions and billions of years? I'll let Carl Sagan figure that one out. There's a lot of flaws in the old earth mentality. I'm a young earth guy. I think we've been here about 6,000 years. So if that's the case, then the 7,000 year would be the millennial kingdom, still the earth, 7,000 years, seven days of creation, 7,000 years, a day like 1,000 years, 1,000 years like a day. And that makes some rational sense, at least it does to me. But listen, if that's the case, what is the span from creation to the crucifixion? Biblically, that would be 4,000 years or four days. Four days. Get the lamb on the 10th, sacrifice him on the 14th. Four days. Jesus would have been sacrificed if a day is it's a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, Jesus was sacrificed on the fourth day after selection, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Verse seven, moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Now, Pastor teachers, I was sharing this with our staff earlier today, that, that pastors have a tendency, we overly concern ourselves with the idea of personal application. You know, you're, you're studying for a teaching and you gotta come up with some way of applying now what you've just taught, which is not easy to do in some chapters of Leviticus. Okay, I'll just tell you. How do you apply that? But there's no greater application in history than the application of the blood. The blood. They applied the blood to the doorpost and to the lintel. And note, understand two things about it. Skip on down to verse 21 as we see this taking place. Moses calls for the elders of Israel. Chapter 12, verse 21. He said to them, go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover. Slay the Pesach. And then he says, you shall take a bunch of hyssop dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lentil and then to the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. So there's the requirement of the, of the first Passover. This is what you do. We know the story, blood on the doorpost, blood on the lentil, but maybe you didn't know this. First off, Moses told the elders literally slay the Pesach. Slay the Passover. Lamb is not in there. Lamb is implied. But what's interesting is that Passover, Pesach, it can mean the sacrifice. It can mean the feast or it can mean the day itself. It's interchangeable there. So slay the Pesach. He's referring here, obviously, to the Passover lamb. Understand 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. 
Christ is the Passover. He is the Pesach. He, this is all just looking ahead to that. This is all foreshadowing that ultimate moment in all history when Jesus went to the cross on Passover. This is, by the way, the second of five times that he uses the word Pesach in chapter 12. Passover is used, it won't be used again until the very end of Shemot, the end of Exodus, chapter 34, verse 25, we'll see the word Passover used one more time there, but right here in chapter 12, at the consummate explanation of the Passover, it's used five times what you Bible students know as the number of grace. Five times grace. The first time it's used in the Bible is remarkable. It's also in chapter 12. And I'll show you that in just a second because we skipped on down to 21 and 22. But listen, how do you apply the blood? How do we make application now of the blood? They applied the blood right on the door. How do we apply the blood? Well, first off, notice the hyssop. That's how they were to do it. You gotta take some hyssop and dip it in the basin and then splatter it on and they would, would kind of slap it on because hyssop was a little plant like a mistletoe. It's a rugged little uh, bush. And you could take hyssop and it, it, it could be used for this, for this purpose. But hyssop, hyssop symbolizes in the scripture very clearly again and again, two things, purity and humility. Purity and humility. That David wrote, Psalm 51 verse seven, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. It's purity and humility. So what we're seeing here, apply this. How do I apply the blood of Christ in my life? You apply the pure blood of Jesus with humility. We're back to that word again. We cannot receive Christ unless we receive him with humility. We don't receive the blood of his sacrifice unless we do so with humility. Hey, Isaiah chapter two, verse 11 says, the proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who's proud and lofty and against everyone who's lifted up that he may be abased. And it is nothing short of pure arrogance to think that flesh and blood can inherit the kingdom. Now let that sink in because the idea of flesh and blood inheriting the kingdom, maybe you would say as a Christian, as a believer, well, no, I don't believe flesh and blood will enter the kingdom. We have to do that spiritually. We have to be glorified. Yeah, flesh and blood won't get you there either. You cannot work your way into this. You can't figure the angles to get there. You gotta trust in Jesus. This is a spiritual journey we are on that is a heart-affecting, heart-changing, heart-altering journey. And we, we can only have a softened heart as we apply the pure blood of Christ with humility, of course, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But he says down in verse 57 of 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's your picture of purity and humility at Calvary as Jesus, the Passover, was sacrificed. 
fact, interesting, John 19, verse 28 says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. Guess what they did? A jar of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, (laughs) and they raised it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, to Telestai, it is finished. He bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. And the pure blood of Christ was offered with complete humility. So we apply the blood with humility. And then secondly, we apply the blood, note this, from abundant sufficiency. Abundant sufficiency. The word basin is interesting here in verse 22. You dip it in the blood, which is in the basin, and then you apply the blood in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts. So they would dip that hyssop in the basin. Basin is saf, S-A-P-H, if you're transliterating, saf. Saf literally means, and it's of Egyptian origin, the word means threshold. Now, this is interesting to me. The saf, the threshold, is exactly that. It was built in to the threshold of the front door as a wash basin for feet. So where we today have a doormat, this is pre-mat, pre-tinnies. You know, we come to our doormat and we scrape the shoes off on the doormat and then we go inside or we take the shoes off or whatever we do. Theirs was not a mat that was flat. It was a basin in front of the door or right next to the door that could be filled with water for the washing of feet. So what they were to do here is take this little lamb, slay it at the door. They slayed it right there and drained the blood into the saff, into the basin. Taking the hyssop then, dipping it into the saff, they would apply it to both doorposts and to the lintel. And if you saw this visually, and I need to be graphic with this, there was blood all the way around the door. It wasn't just one side or the other. Some have said it made a cross. And indeed, if you go up a doorpost and across the the lintel, you have just made a cross of blood. But then you got the other lintel. Understand, this is sufficiency that even though it went up one side, across the top, down the other side, there was a pool of it right at the front of the door in the sap. To apply the blood from sufficiency is to understand there is more than enough. There is always more than enough. The sacrifice of Jesus is all you will ever need and then some, and I love this passage. John really breaks it out when he says in 1 John 2, verse one, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Because the doorposts and the lintel and the saff are all blood. There's more than enough from the little lamb slain. But the Lord doesn't even stop with external application. Go back now to verse 8 of chapter 12. He says, They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they will still eat that today, those those bitter herbs, just to remind them of the bitterness of the slavery. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails, 
Now, for me, that would be a fear factor meal, but they ate all of it. Verse 10, and you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. They had to roast it. Why? Because A, roasting was the fastest way to cook it, and B, it was the most effective way to, to get out any residual blood that was still in the meat. See, the blood, the blood was to be applied, but not to be drunk. God will set that in Torah law. You do not drink the blood, for the blood is the life. Interesting that uh, Nahum Sarna, uh, a Jewish commentator, from a Jewish rabbinical perspective, put it this way. He said, the consumption of the animal is an indispensable element of the ritual. By means of this sacrificial meal, kinship ties are strengthened and family and neighborly solidarity is promoted while communion with God is established. But listen, that's good. That's nice Jewish interpretation and understanding. But with Messiah, this is so much more. If you got your Bible there and you can turn quickly, go over to John chapter six. John chapter six. Picking up in this interesting passage in verse 51, Jesus has been teaching them and talking to them and explaining to them about himself as, as the bread of life, the bread from heaven, comparative to the manna that we're gonna come up to soon in our studies in Exodus. And he says, John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And he's already making an allusion to Passover, but they don't get it. Verse 52, the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Wait, wait, drink the blood? How oh, we can't do that? Wait, wait, this is cannibalism. What's he talking about? Jesus goes on. He pushes it further. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Whoa. Okay, you're a Jew in the audience and you are blown away because this is so graphic and so bizarre and it goes so far beyond Jesus just being a nice rabbi. You gotta eat me, he says. You gotta consume me. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, his disciples, these are his followers when they heard it, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? <laughs> It is the spirit who gives life. And then he brings the explanation. The flesh profits nothing. I'm not talking about you eating my skin, digging into my muscle. That, that's not the point here. You're missing it. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Always are. 
there are always some who just don't believe. And the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Some do not believe, he said, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. And verse 66, John 6, 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. When we share in communion, which is the new covenant in his blood, do you realize we are consuming Christ? Now, I'm I'm not talking about the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation that teaches that the bread and the juice actually become flesh and blood as we swallow them, It, it mystically changes. No, that's not the point. It's still cracker and juice. The words we're talking about here are spirit and they are life. There is a truth deeper than this that we are to consume Christ. We are to take him in, ingesting his word, digesting his truth, nourished and strengthened by his spirit, turning to him in all things. As God wove Torah life into the experience of the Jewish people, so through communion, through his word, through our fellowship, through prayer by his spirit, he wants to weave into our very experience of life, his own person, consume Christ. Back in chapter 12, we gotta keep going. Wow, okay, chapter 12, verse 11. Now you shall eat it in this manner. With your loins girded, sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. It is Yahweh's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night. Notice who will do it. God says, I will. And will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 11 is the first time the word Passover is used. Note the context in the Bible, it's important. It is Yahweh's Passover. It's his. It is about him, it is unto him, it is for him. He is the focus, same as we take communion. It is all about Jesus. It's not about you, not about me. It's about him and considering his body, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, considering his body right, understanding his body, which is the church. And it's about Jesus Christ. Pesach, the Passover lamb, the Passover feast, the Passover meal. But you know what? Something about the word Pesach, the Hebrew stem of this word, which is P-S-H in English, but those three letters in the Hebrew That stem has three meanings. To have compassion, to protect, and to pass or skip over. Passover, protection, compassion. That's what the Pesach is all about. The crucifixion of Jesus is compassion and protection and a passing over 
of the sins we have committed. Paul brings it together with such clear-cut brilliance. He says in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, This was, note this, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God passed over. The Passover was a putting on hold, if you will, of the sins of people who have faith in him, trusting in him, the Israelites, but also those who would go with them and extending ultimately to the Passover action of Christ when Christ became our Passover. All that time in history, God waited. He did not judge the sin of those who believed. He passed over. So more than a feast, more than a meal, more than a moment, the lamb, the lamb at that time represented a pause in judgment. God saying, I'm gonna withhold judgment. But when Christ became our Passover, judgment fell, was paid fully by the blood of Jesus, the pure, perfect, humble blood of Christ so that we could not just have our sins passed over, but erased forevermore. Verse 14, Exodus chapter 12. Now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Year by year by year, the Jewish people could say, once again, he has passed over our sins. Oh, a wonderful Passover. He's passed over the sins again this year. Next year, he passed over our sins. Oh, next year in Jerusalem, he's gonna pass over our sins. But ultimately, there has to be a reckoning for those sins. God doesn't forget and righteousness righteousness demands justice, demands payment. And the reckoning came at Calvary by Christ our Passover. There is no other reckoning. That's it. You either come to the reckoning that Jesus took on his shoulders at Calvary, or you will have to reckon with God for your own sins. Plain and simple. Now, I wanna show you a couple things and we're gonna move pretty quick here, so just hang with me a few more minutes. Uh, One thing that's interesting here in these first 14 verses, and and chapter 12 really divides up. First 14 verses uh, and then verse 15 through 20 are a separate section and then verses 20 and 21 as we saw and then we get on into the narrative. But the first 14 verses is a beautiful uh, literary symmetry You don't have to write this down, but just so you get that there's more behind this than we can see with the naked eye, in this presentation of Pesach, it begins in verses one and two with a new beginning. And then it goes to the blood of the lamb in verses three through 11. And then verse 12, we arrive right at the centerpiece of it, the Lord as the judge. And then in verse 13, we go right back to the blood of the lamb. So the Lord is judge on either side of the Lord is judge is the blood of the lamb, the blood of the lamb. Comes right in there. And then it ends in verse 14 with the permanent ordinance of the new beginning. So there's a way that it rounds out here. New beginning, blood of the lamb, Lord is judge, blood of the lamb, permanent ordinance of the new beginning. And there's a beautiful 
Hebrew uh, linear way that this is written, those first verses. But it happens again with the next feast, verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Serious business, God says, you will keep this feast. And then on the first day, you shall have a holy assembly. So the first day of this next feast, a holy assembly, they would call it the great Sabbath. And then another day, another holy assembly, a a Sabbath on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. Hag Hatzimot, or Hamatzot. Hag Hamatzot is the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout all your generations as a permanent ordinance. Verse 18, in the first month, On the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. No Twinkies, in other words. Verse 20, you shall not eat anything leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. Hag hamatzot. The feast of unleavened bread. There's a symmetry here in these verses. Verse 15 begins with the seven days of no leaven. Verse 16 then describes the two special Sabbaths. Verse 17 arrives at the meaning, the heart of the feast. Verse 18 goes back to restate the two special Sabbaths and then it rounds back out, verses 19 and 20, with the seven days of no leaven. So again, woven into it is this beautiful Hebrew literature that we wouldn't see in the English. Get this, greater than the beauty of the writing is the juxtaposition of these two feasts back to back. Passover, and then immediately the very evening of Passover. Remember, Passover comes between the settings. So on the setting of Passover, you are now into the feast of unleavened bread. It doesn't sound like much of a feast to me. Now, a gluten-free week. Feast of unleavened bread picks up right on the heels of Passover, you really can't have the one without the other because of what they express. See, the Jews, they see the whole week as Passover. They'll say Pesach, and, they, and they're referring to Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, the whole thing. The whole kit and caboodle is Pesach to them. But get this. There is the in Egypt Passover, and then there's the out of Egypt Passover. You could say the in Egypt feast and the out of Egypt feast. That is, the in Egypt Passover is eaten in traveling clothes, sandals, staff, ready to go, quickly roasted, bitter herbs, no leftovers. No leftovers. There wouldn't be, they wouldn't be there at home to eat them, you know? And that's the in Egypt Passover. But then the next feast, immediately on its heels, by the time they get to the feast of unleavened bread, guess where they are? Out of Egypt. They're not there anymore. They've journeyed. And so out of Egypt, it's eaten for the entire first seven days out, the bread of traveling, as you'll see here in just a sec. Here's the point. Those who eat the Passover in Egypt are those who are committed to walking with God out of Egypt. Passover, 
feast of unleavened bread as I continue on. What does that look like? The Passover sacrifice opens the door for the journey. And as we step out on the journey with God, guess what? Unleavened bread is the meal. Okay, what do you mean, Rick? I'll let Paul tell you. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, but with, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Note this, malice and wickedness are to be replaced with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Malice, kakia, wickedness, poneria, they cover the, the expanse of evil thoughts and sin behaviors. Malice is evil thoughts. Okay, wickedness is evil behavior. To walk with God is to leave both kinds of leaven out of our backpacks. We accept Christ our Passover. We are cleansed by that. We are now to walk without leaven. How do we do that? With sincerity and the truth. We follow Jesus. We leave behind the old self. Everything is made new. Our desire is to journey forth with him. Verse 21. Now just follow this through. I'm just gonna read a bit. Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, as we read, dip it in the blood which is in the basin, the saff. Apply some of the blood that's in the basin to the lentil and the two doorposts so that none of you go outside of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil, and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come in to your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and for your children forever. By the way, this will be celebrated in the millennial kingdom. And when you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this rite, this abodah, this service of worship. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say it is a Pesach sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And note this, the people bowed low and they worshiped. And this was a solemn moment. And my friends, the people of Israel show amazing faith. You gotta get this. This was an entire people group who together believed God. How do you know they believed God? How do you know they accepted this with great faith? Verse 28, then the sons of Israel went and did. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Okay, you gotta put yourself in their shoes. They had seen the plagues. They finally began to comprehend that God had some intentions for them. Remember the first three plagues they went through with Egypt. And then four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, they were protected. They were set apart. They were different and they realized God was doing this. So they had that behind them. But honestly, sacrificing a lamb in this way, painting its blood all around the front door and having a basin full of it, that, that had never been done before. That's unheard of, it's bizarre. 
And, and all of this was told to them before the 10th of the month. So they had to process it. Then they had to go out and get the lamb. And then they had to act it out, take care of the lamb, sacrifice the lamb, and spread its blood four days later on the 14th. And then roast it, eat it, dressed up, ready to travel. This is a lot to ask one person. I think, what if just the Bridge Fellowship had something like this laid on us right now? Here's what you're going to have to do. They'd seen all the plagues, but they'd never experienced anything like this. Hebrews eleven twenty eight. speaking of Moses, but I, I think clearly applies to all Israel, by faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. They kept the first Passover. Don't miss that. That's huge. And enti- 600,000 men, add in women, children, families, so upwards of 3 million people all said, okay, we believe you, Lord. And they kept that first Passover. And suddenly, I get something. Don't miss this. Suddenly, I realize of all the things that we've seen God doing through the plagues, glorifying himself, shutting down the idols and the gods of Egypt, calling out the rebellion of Pharaoh and the Egyptian people, protecting and setting apart his people Israel, of all those different things, there's one thing we've missed. There's one thing we haven't noted. The preparation of the people to leave. All this time, God's been preparing a people for faith. All this time, he's been getting them ready to go. And so I ask you in this season, how has God been preparing you for departure? Preparing you to go forth. Well, I know what you're thinking, rapture. And if I say, are you ready? I know most would say, yes, let's go now. How has God been preparing you to take the next step of faith, whatever it is for us, because we don't know. I pray for the rapture of the church. I pray for the going home as soon as possible. But he may have more out ahead for us. And he has been using this season. I I hope it just hasn't been rankling you, upsetting you. I hope you've been able to recognize in this four months that God has been, four months, like four days, that God has been preparing to deliver to something new to something he is going to do, or are you ready? Verse 29, and we'll finish. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck, that is Yahweh Hakah, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, (laughs) and all the firstborn of the cattle, as I told you, wiping out any possibility that they might think it was some other God. Pharaoh arose in the night, verse 30, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. By the way, that word great cry, exact same word in the Hebrew that was used earlier in Exodus when the great cry of the Israelites reached the ears of God. Now the Egyptians are crying out. And then he called, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron at night. And he said, rise up and get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said and go and bless me also. Bless me too. 
the Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, which again, that's faith. There's no other explanation for it. They acted in faith, for they had requested the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and the Lord had given. Literally there, the Lord gave. I want you to compare that. In verse 29, the Lord struck, Yahweh Hakah. This is now the Lord gave, Yahweh Natan. I want to be in the group where the Lord gave, <laughs> not struck. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. I could add without a shot fired. <laughs> Verse 37, now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot. Sukkot means tent town. About 600,000 men on foot set aside or aside from the children. A mixed multitude also went up with them these are Egyptians and, and people in Egypt who saw what was going on and trusted Yahweh. I want to be with them. I don't want any more of this Egypt or this Pharaoh. I want to go with Moses and, and the people of Israel. And so they're accompanied by this great multitude. And it, it reminds me that God is always saving more than we think. He's always reaching out beyond what, it's not just Israel. Right? People getting saved here, drawn into this whole program of God who were not even Jews. A mixed multitude. Some will say that multitude's gonna be problematic later, and probably, <laughs> but so will the Jews themselves. We create our own problems right here in the church. We don't need help from outsiders. But the point is, God is always reaching out. He's always going beyond what we ever think, especially when it comes to salvation. So the mixed multitude went with them along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. They baked the dough which they had brought out of, the, out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. We're going on a journey. And all they got is some unleavened bread cake and nothing else. Well, that's great planning. It is great planning if you're following Jesus, who says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. Now the time that the sons of Israel, verse 40, lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And there it is, verse 41, Exodus. They depart. It is a night to be observed for the Lord for having brought them out from the land of Egypt this night for the Lord is to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. Ah, yes. <laughs> a night to remember. A night to remember. We're gonna stop right there for tonight. But that was a night to remember up until that point. Up till then, nothing like this had ever happened before. This was an absolute marvel. This deliverance, Passover, the deliverance itself, the beginning of unleavened bread, remarkable, a night to remember. But the greatest Passover took place when the little lamb slain before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ became the Passover. Again, on Passover. And immediately that eve, Hag Hamatzot began 
That is signifying the unleavening of sin. Passover offered, the leaven is now removed. Oh, but wait, wait, there's one more. There's one more feast, hasn't even been talked about yet, won't show up until Leviticus 23, verse nine, another feast that's added into that same weekend in Torah law, a feast that always fell on the great, the day after the great Sabbath. Remember, there are two Sabbaths in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The first one's called the Great Sabbath. So you've got Passover, the Great Sabbath. And the day after the Great Sabbath, another feast was introduced, Reshit, the Feast of First Fruits. And it was on that day that Christ our Passover became Christ the First Fruits of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now <laughs> Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. As in Adam, verse 22, all die. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. That is in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ, the reshit, Christ, the first fruits. And after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Father, bless the teaching of your word tonight. Help us as we ingest it now to digest it, then to do this word, to act on it, to live it out. Help us to leave aside the old leaven, the leaven of malice and wickedness, Lord, Help us to leave that out and to walk the unleavened life. We have been unleavened by the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, Lord, may we choose to leave leaven out of our homes, leaven out of our lives. May we follow Christ Jesus, the first fruits. Make us, Lord, I, I boldly pray, make us sin free. But if we sin, as John said, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that your blood is more than sufficient, your grace overwhelming. And this picture of Passover, which we haven't even completed tonight, what a wonder, Lord Jesus, that you became our Passover. Lord, we leave this in your hands application, what you want to do in our lives. We leave it with you now in Jesus' name. Amen. 